0: Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of After the Final Whistle here on Apple Podcasts and podcast.com. I am your host Brad Clear. It is Saturday, March 21st, NFL free agency. It was wild for these last couple days, still going on, but we had a plethora of moves, a plethora of trades, significant um, moving around the league of lots of different high caliber players across many positions, Lots of moves made by many teams. This episode here of After the Final Whistle, again hosted by me, Brad Clear, we're going to dive in to the nitty-gritty of all these moves, these major moves from these last couple of days in free agency. And we're going to start it off talking about the first sort of, and to me still, the biggest whoa, what is going on here move. And that was the trade of DeAndre Hopkins from the Houston Texans to the Arizona Cardinals. DeAndre Hopkins, arguably the best wide receiver in the NFL today, traded along with the Texans' fourth round pick in this year's draft to the Cardinals for the 40th overall pick in this year's draft, the Cardinals' second, the Cardinals' fourth for next year, and David Johnson and his contract. So, let's start by looking at this from the Houston Texans' standpoint. The fact of the matter is head coach slash general manager slash all-powerful football operations-wise, Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien is—let me put it this way. This trade, I I remember it happened right after, I believe, Peter King put out his Football Morning in America uh, Monday morning article talking about how he had heard buzz that DeAndre Hopkins might be traded, and everyone freaked out. And then, of course, later on, what happened? The trade. Now, looking at it from the Texan standpoint, the, the the idea of trading Hopkins seemingly was to replenish a depleted supply of draft capital, which was the result, basically, of Bill O'Brien making these large swings for someone like a Laramie Tunsil, trading a third for Duke Johnson, trading a third for a Gary and Conley. Making these large-scale moves to the point where in this three, four-year period, the only first round pick they'll have ended up having is Titus Howard, drafted in the first round in this past draft in 2019, an offensive tackle. So the idea of trading Hopkins here is to replenish that depleted supply of draft capital. However, you trade your best player, the best, arguably the best wide receiver in the NFL, and a fourth round pick, and you don't come out of it with a first round pick. And you take back a very bad contract in David Johnson. And furthermore, to me, what it comes across as is we saw the Stefan Diggs trade with the Bills, which I'll get into in a bit. We're able to sit here and say that there's no team that would have been willing to offer what I thought the normal and justified asking price for DeAndre Hopkins of first and second. We're sitting here and there was no team that was willing to offer that. Of course there was. So I think there was also an element in this trade of tunnel vision from the Texans in the idea of getting David Johnson, who has a horrible contract, is declining, and they could have just kept Hopkins, moved forward, and maybe gone out and been a player for Todd Gurley after he was released. To have traded DeAndre Hopkins and Jadavian Clowney in the last year and to not have come out of that with a first-round pick is insane to me. That is just crazy. And now, also for comparison's sake, you know, let's look at Odell Beckham when he was traded to the Cleveland Browns. Odell Beckham brought back to the New York Giants the 17th pick in the draft, the 95th pick in the draft, and a starting safety in Jabril Peppers. A first, a third, and a starter. For, a very, for one of the best wide receivers in the NFL, but a wide receiver not as good as DeAndre Hopkins. DeAndre Hopkins brought back the 40th pick in the draft, David Johnson, and a swapping of a current year fourth for the next year's fourth. And as far as the element of DeAndre Hopkins wanting to sort of redo that three-year, $40 million remaining figure on his contract and to get himself a contract justifiably in that $18 to $20 million a year range, you know, you go ahead and do that. That's a perfectly reasonable dollar figure, especially with the cap going up in the coming years, likely with this new CBA, with these new TV deals that are going to come as a result of the CBA being signed, or ratified, I should say. The cap's going to go up. We're looking at paying DeAndre Hopkins in that Michael Thomas range. You do that. You don't ask any questions about it. You don't use the idea that DeAndre Hopkins wants a market value contract and wants to tear up the three years and $40 million remaining, you don't use that as means to trade that player or to justify trading that player. He was asking for market value money for the player that he is. And now looking at the David Johnson part of this trade, you know I, my reaction initially was that to take on David Johnson's contract, you know, I would have looked at a second and a fourth as being pretty close to what it would have taken just to take on Johnson's contract alone, let alone take on Johnson's contract and send out DeAndre Hopkins and a fourth. to specifically put, you know, a figure on this David Johnson contract. David Johnson cannot really cannot be cut in this league year, obviously as a result of the fact that the dead money present on his contract, would disallow there to be any savings from cutting him. Cutting David Johnson would decrease a team's cap space by $1.14 million. Now, after this season, you know, since he was on the Texans' roster on the third day of this 2020 league year, he has a $2.1 million guarantee for 2021. However, he can be cut, and despite having that $2.1 million in dead money, the Texans would save $6.9 million towards the cap. So, needless to say, right now, do some basic math here, we're looking at over $14 million that the Texans are going to have to pay David Johnson between this year and his $2.1 million guaranteed next year. And if they don't cut him next year, then we're looking at them paying Johnson a $20 million figure. And this is for a running back who really peaked a couple years ago at this point, 2016 or so, is on the decline, is getting up there in age as far as running backs are concerned, and is clearly not the player he once was. So my confusion also stems from the fact that Bill O'Brien views David Johnson as a solution to this offense. That... Not only getting the second for DeAndre Hopkins to replenish their depleted draft capital supply is of value, but David Johnson being in the backfield with Duke Johnson as well, that is going to help this offense. Even though DeAndre Hopkins, Deshaun Watson's number one weapon, and perhaps the best wide receiver in the NFL, is no longer on this team. Now to draw an interesting parallel also between this trade and the Odell Beckham trade, the Texans went out and signed a veteran slot receiver. You know, the Giants signed Golden Tate after they traded Odell Beckham. The Texans going out here and signing Randall Cobb to a three-year deal for $27 million. I thought this was an overpay in terms of years and money. Uh, I, I look at Randall Cobb. He's not a guy I'd want to give more than a one-year contract at this point. I think a one-year, $7 million a year contract, one year for seven million is probably what I'd look at as fair value for Randall Cobb. And we look at this offense now as far as weapons are concerned for Deshaun Watson. The number one wide receiver now in this Houston Texans offense is Will Fuller. Will Fuller. Will Fuller, when he plays, Will Fuller is a very good number two wide receiver. He is a big play down the field threat, a vertical threat. He's a good number two. And that's when he plays. Will Fuller is incredibly injury-prone. This past year, he played 11 games. Year before that, 7 games. Year before that, 10 games. Year before that, 14 games. He's never played a full season of games. He's missed, as we just mentioned, multiple games in the last three years. So, to depend on Will Fuller in the sense of being a number one wide receiver now, instead of being a very good number two, and to depend on him in that role when he has shown that he is not capable of of staying healthy for a full season, that's weakening your offense. Kenny Stills behind him, I like Kenny Stills. I think, again, in a perfect scenario, Kenny or Kenny Stills is a... I think you can get away with Kenny Stills as your number two wide receiver. I think what's going to happen, though, is with Will Fuller inevitably missing games, there are going to be points in this season where Kenny Stills is the number one wide receiver in this Texans offense. And that is not a recipe for success. Now, Kiki Kuti, he, I like Kiki Kuti a lot. He's been a good slot receiver for the Texans as well. Unfortunately, with Ke, uh, with Kuti, there's two things here. First off is the fact that, similar to Will Fuller, Kuti has suffered with injuries. And in addition to that, he hasn't necessarily been given the greatest amount of opportunity. You know, when he has played, he's been a very good, very effective slot receiver, but I feel like he is not really been embraced and given that full opportunity in that role. Going specifically on his games missed, he's been in the league for two years. This past year he played nine games. The year before that he played six games. So two of your top three wide receivers here, based on history here, are very likely to miss a good amount of games. And then you have Randall Cobb, another slot receiver who you're overpaying now in a three-year deal, who's getting up there in age and is not the player he was in his prime with Green Bay. So, we're looking at a four-man wide receiver group of Will Fuller, Kenny Stills, Kiki Kuti, and Randall Cobb. Fuller and Kuti likely to be injured at some point, leaving what's going to probably end up having some games with Kenny Stills and Randall Cobb as your top two options. But hey, you got David Johnson in your backfield. I just don't get it. I really don't understand this. We look at... Just, I just want to go through here Bill O'Brien's trades before I mention the Cardinals aspect of this. Just Bill O'Brien's trades um, since he has been, whether before he was formerly named general manager, as long as he has been the head decision maker as far as football operations and transactions are concerned. So we have the Jadavian Clowney trade from last year. Jadavian Clowney sent to the Seahawks for a third round pick. Barkevious Mingo, and Jacob Martin. Not great. Then we have the Laramie Tunsil trade. A huge needed offensive tackle. No regard shown for the draft here. Laramie Tunsil, Kenny Stills, Dolphins 4th, 2020. They're 6th in 2021. For the Texans, 1st in 2020, 2021, and 2nd in 2021 as well. Traded a 3rd round pick to the Cleveland Browns for Duke Johnson. So if we're keeping score here... They have spent a third round pick on one running back and effectively DeAndre Hopkins and a fourth for the other running back and a second. So significant resources towards the running back position, which is a position, as we all know, you do not need to be making these efforts and use of resources towards to get sufficient production out of that spot. And there are other trades as well, you know, Gary and Conley for a third, um, Carlos High trade as well. But just looking at this DeAndre Hopkins trade, the Jadavian Clowney trade, the Laramie Tunsil trade, and the Duke Johnson trade, there is no cohesive plan. There seems to be a lot of tunnel vision with these trades. And these are moves that, frankly, do not allow you to have a sustainable winning franchise and have made the team worse. They put themselves in a position of no leverage in the Tunsil trade. They traded their best player and the best wide receiver in the NFL for a bad contract running back who the compensation they got back with that running back is probably about what it would cost just to take on that contract. You know, in a vacuum, I would have said, if I was taking on Johnson's contract, I would have wanted a second or a third. They got basically a second and a fourth, gave up their fourth, and gave up DeAndre Hopkins. It's just not sustainable here. So... I feel kind of bad for Deshaun Watson in this sense, and the Texans have just made themselves worse with this trade. I have no words more to say. Now, let's finally talk about it from the Cardinals' standpoint. This is a home run for the Arizona Cardinals. They're going to end up redoing this deal for DeAndre Hopkins. His three years, $40 million, I would suspect that gets torn up, and he gets a deal similar to the level of which Michael Thomas got this past year um, from the New Orleans Saints. But we look at this Cardinals team, what is this team? This team is going to be defined by the air raid offense. They have a young franchise quarterback who looks great in Kyler Murray, an offensive-minded head coach in Cliff Kingsbury. They're going to go into this offense, and there's going to be times where they go five out and air raid this thing. And you now have, with your young franchise quarterback on his rookie contract, when you're instilling this new offense Under this offensive mind of of Cliff Kingsbury, you now have arguably the best wide receiver in the NFL who catches any ball you can throw to him. If it's contested, if it's a deep ball, if it's into a tight window on an intermediary throw, he can go up and get it. He is as dependable and talented, DeAndre Hopkins, as any wide receiver in this league. And you now have that on your team. When you're developing this offense, you have this young franchise quarterback And all you had to give up was the second-round pick that you possessed in this draft, swapped fourths, and you got off of an impossible-to-move contract in David Johnson. I thought, as I just mentioned, the Cardinals would have had to trade a second or a third with David Johnson just to get off of his contract. And not only did they trade a second and a fourth to get off that contract, they got a fourth back and got an incredible wide receiver, For this team that is going to be offensively based. And you now look at this offense. You know we talked about going five out. DeAndre Hopkins. You still have Larry Fitzgerald. Christian Kirk who I think is a real solid wide receiver. um, As a number three on a really good team. Or as a low tier number two. Um, In the draft last year. They drafted quantity of receivers. And Andy Isabella. And Hakeem Butler. And Keyshawn Johnson Jr. None of those guys really showed a ton last year. But still, you have quantity there. So you have at least a chance that one of them hits and can be a dependable number three or so wide receiver moving forward. You have DeAndre Hopkins, Larry Fitzgerald, Christian Kirk, this batch of young wide receivers. And when we came into this offseason, the Cardinals really had two major needs, wide receiver and offensive line. They're sitting there now, the eighth pick in the draft. They've acquired DeAndre Hopkins they can sit there, at pick eight, and I would suspect that at least one offensive tackle out of worfs, Becton, Wills, and Thomas is gone by that point. One, maybe two, I think definitely one. So they can take the best of the two or three remaining offensive tackles at that eighth overall spot. All four of those guys I think are going to be studs on the offensive line in the NFL for years to come, and they have the best wide receiver in the NFL now on their team. And got off of David Johnson's contract and retained their first round pick. I think this is a slam dunk for the Arizona Cardinals. And I kind of look at the Arizona Cardinals, and I think I know that's a very tough division. Obviously, the Niners, the Seahawks, the Rams, and them. I think the Cardinals have a chance to be a sneaky, surprising team this year as far as how many wins they can get. Maybe it's not this year where they can really push for a wild card spot. Maybe it ends up being next year. But I think this is going to be a vastly improved team this season. And I think there's a chance that they could be a sneaky team who could make some noise towards a wild card spot in the NFC. So now, moving away from the DeAndre Hopkins wide receiver trade, let's go to Stephon Diggs, traded from the Minnesota Vikings to the Buffalo Bills. Compensation here, Stephon Diggs traded along with a 7th round pick from Minnesota to Buffalo in exchange for Buffalo's 1st round pick this year, the 22nd overall pick, um, Buffalo's 5th and 6th round pick this year, and their 4th round pick next year. The Buffalo Bills coming into this offseason, I talked about this on a podcast previously in a tweet about it, I looked at this offseason after them having made the playoffs last year. At the time, the chance for Tom Brady to leave, as we all know, he is now gone. He'll be the next topic on the show. I looked at this year and I said, with the massive amount of cap space they had, with where they are as a team, this was the offseason for them to figuratively go for the kill. Spend a lot of your cap space. Be very aggressive. Go out there. Acquire one or two Top-level wide receivers, whether that be in free agency and the draft, A.J. Green got tagged. My initial idea was A.J. Green and maybe Justin Jefferson at 22. They seemed to like T. Higgins a lot. Doesn't matter now. But that was my idea, for them to address the wide receiver position. And the biggest need for this team was a number one, surefire, dependable, playmaking wide receiver. Because we look at this Buffalo Bills team, Josh Allen is a talented quarterback, albeit a flawed quarterback. He's very athletic, he can make plays, but he also has a glaring issue with accuracy. And as we saw in the playoff game against the Texans, from time to time can have, you know, not make the best decisions or be the safest, most dependable quarterback when he's out there on the field. You really don't necessarily know what you're getting at all times. A lot of boom, a lot of bust. So what you have to do is surround him with as many weapons as possible to make life as easy as possible for him. Devin Singletary, they drafted last year. Dawson Knox. John Brown and Cole Beasley was a real solid 1-2 duo at wide receiver. And to now add into that, Stephon Diggs, who is one of, I would say, the 12 best wide receivers in the NFL. He he is on a super value contract here. Four more years at $45 million. In his prime right now, he's only 26. 1,000 yards receiving last year, 1,000 yards receiving the year before. He's a guy who can be a major vertical threat. He has a ton of speed. He is a big-time playmaking threat on the outside for this Buffalo Bills team now. When you can get a number one wide receiver of that caliber who's young, who's in his prime, who is on that great of a value contract, you give up pick 22, your fifth, your sixth, and your fourth for next year every day of the week. Stephon Diggs is exactly the player that the Buffalo Bills needed most this offseason. And they went out there, and they got him. And I think that this is perhaps the best move made, whether it be a signing, whether it be a trade, since the legal tampering period began on Monday. This trade, good value, you get exactly what you needed, a player on a great contract in this prime This is the year, obviously now with Tom Brady gone, where the Buffalo Bills can really take a leap towards being true contenders in the AFC. If Josh Allen can be a little safer with the ball, can be a little more accurate, can be a little more improved with the weapons he now has around him, with that elite level defense, with their solid offensive line, this is a team to me that has the chance to really be true contenders in the entirety of the AFC. The division, basically, it's its theirs. That division is theirs now. An elite defense, I mentioned Josh Allen. Talented but flawed, but also on his rookie deal. Team as a whole, largely young players on inexpensive rookie contracts. This is your window to go for the kill, to add as much talent as you can, and to build this team up as much as possible. And they took advantage of that. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott and recognize that this is the year for them to go for it and take that leap. And moving past just the Stefan Diggs trade, we look at what the Bills have done this entire offseason. And I felt like I said it last year, and I'm saying it again now, Brandon Bean has done just an incredible job with this Buffalo Bills team yet again this offseason. Now, The only move that they made this offseason that I wasn't that much of a fan of was signing Josh Norman. I know there's familiarity with Sean McDermott and Josh Norman from their time in Carolina, but I kind of think that Josh Norman is washed at this point. I don't know how much there is left with Josh Norman. I know he's not necessarily being asked to take on a huge role there, but he really just looked done last year with Washington. I really would have preferred Buffalo to hold that money and to really make a run at Chris Harris. You know, who knows if he would have been interested, but Chris Harris would have been the perfect guy for them to add as a slot corner this offseason, so I was not a fan of the Josh Norman move, but looking at it as a whole, they lost Shaq Lawson. He signed with the Dolphins. They signed Mario Addison from Carolina. Mario Addison, in my opinion, is better than Shaq Lawson. Vernon Butler Signed at that defensive tackle spot after losing Jordan Phillips, obviously now on the Arizona Cardinals. Um, even further past that, Quentin Jefferson signed on a two year deal. Quentin Spain re signed on that offensive line. AJ Klein extended Jordan Poyer on what I thought was a nice value extension, keeping that really nice safety duo of Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. This team. As I've said just now before, this team is primed to take the leap and to really make noise as a true contender in the AFC as a whole. I am so impressed with the work that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have done since taking over to get this team to this point. Really, it's all just a matter of how dependable in big game playoff situations can Josh Allen be. And I would think that the addition of Stephon Diggs, who is exactly what they needed will help in that regard. Now, this trade from the Vikings side of things, the Vikings were, in this offseason, were really in a very tight position as far as the cap was concerned. We saw them remedy this with giving Kirk Cousins an extension, which lowered his cap number for this year. Uh, They restructured Daniel Hunter's uh, contract yesterday. The Everson Griffin is going to be gone So, and also with the fact of the matter with Stefan Diggs, you know, it seemed this past season that there was a lot of discontent, there was a lot of frustration, and it kind of seemed as though it was time for all parties involved to just move on. And with the fact that, you know, they were tied up against the cap, uh, they had to restructure these deals, and the fact that things were a little uneasy with Stefan Diggs, and there was a value to be had for him on the market. I get this trade from Minnesota's standpoint. I think they got fair value. Again, a first, a fourth next year, a fifth, and a sixth. I think that's fair value. So they traded a player who, although him and Thielen was a great duo and Diggs is an absolute beast, again, I think it was just time. I think it had run its course as far as Diggs being in Minnesota. And with the fact that they're so tight up against the cap, uh, had to restructure Cousins' deal, restructure Hunter's, just tagged Anthony Harris. To this point, he is not someone who is a tag-and-trade guy. It, it kind it, it helped them in that respect, and as I just said, it just seemed like things were far gone as far as Diggs being in Minnesota was concerned. They got fair value. Now sit there in the draft. They have the 22nd pick via Buffalo. They have the 25th pick, obviously, as their own. They have their own second, their own third. They got a comp third they have their own fourth, they have Buffalo's fifth now, they have their own sixth. The sixth that they got from Buffalo was actually Baltimore's sixth, so Baltimore's sixth via Buffalo. Uh, Miami's seventh at the top of the seventh round there in that Danny Isidore trade from the preseason, a comp seventh, and another comp seventh. So we do the math here, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 picks for the Vikings in this draft a team, frankly, that needs to have a large supply of draft capital with how tight they are um, as far as the cap is concerned. You know, I think the secondary for them is obviously a need. I specifically look at corner. You know, we look in that 22 to 25 range. You know, we'll see who's available. We have guys like Christian Fulton, uh, Traf- uh, Trayvon Diggs, Stefan's brother, um, CJ Henderson, I would suspect will probably be gone by then. Um, now there's a need at the wide receiver spot. We look in this draft, obviously it is loaded at the wide receiver position, so in that maybe late first range, there's Justin Jefferson, there's T. Higgins, there's Brandon Iyuker, guys, who stand out to me. And I think now with Everson Griffin gone, you'd have to look at the edge as well. The point here being, there's a lot of quantity with these picks for the Vikings. It would not surprise me if they traded down from one or two um, of those two first-round picks at 22 and 25. This is a team who needs to add... In the secondary, now add at wide receiver, um, look maybe to add off the edge as well. And then, not to mention the fact that this team also has a need on the offensive line. So, there are needs, there's not a lot of cap space. So, this draft is going to be pivotal for the Vikings to really replenish the cheap young talent on this team to go along with their tight cap situation. So, corner, wide receiver, edge rusher, offensive line. These are the areas I look at the Vikings being able to address in this draft. With a large quantity of picks that they have. But overall, a slam dunk trade for the Bills. For the Vikings, based on the situation, they got good value, fair value for the player. I think it run its course with digs and their cap situation was shot. So the Bills killed it. I think the Bills have an incredible chance to contend the AFC this year. While the Vikings did what they had to do and got good value. And can move forward looking to add young talent to this team via the draft. Now let's talk about the biggest move. Of this entire free agency period, Tom Brady is now a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. Imagine hearing that statement a year ago, two years ago, four years ago, five years ago. Tom Brady is the starting quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. A two-year deal with fifty worth $50 million, fully guaranteed, up to $9 million in in incentives. Split evenly four and a half million each year. He is not allowed to be tagged after the contract ends, and he is not allowed to be traded without his permission. So, we can gather a couple things from that. First, Tom Brady may have aspirations of continuing to play after this two-year deal is up with Tampa with the no-tag provision. And secondly, you know, we thought this whole time that 30 million a year would be what Brady got. $25 million a year, I think that's a win for Tampa Bay. Save that $5 million in space each year. Again, I thought it was going to be a 2 for 60. So this is a win there for Tampa Bay in that regard. So let's look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the team that Tom Brady is joining. Obviously, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team kind of was stuck in the middle, probably lost a couple games that they should have won due to the fact of the the matter that Jameis Winston is a highly volatile quarterback with a propensity of turning the ball over, obviously now that costing him the ability to be seen as a starting quarterback option for these many teams in this quarterback carousel this offseason. We look at this Buccaneers team, and it really fits everything that you'd want as a veteran quarterback. On the offensive side of the ball, you have a two-wide receiver duo in Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, where you have two elite wide receiver options at your disposal. They did not use OJ Howard to the greatest extent that they could have last year. We'll see if they do this year. But when we've seen in college, we've seen in his rookie season, OJ Howard can be a very dependable tight end option as well. So you have potentially, if they were to go out there, Rashad Perriman played very well for them last year in his small sample with Tampa last year with Cleveland before that. Rashad Perriman's a solid number three wide receiver, big play guy. Obviously we know an incredible amount of speed. So if they could bring back Rashad Perriman and you could have Evans, Godwin and Perriman, OJ Howard at that tight end spot with the fact that they signed Tom Brady for 25 million a year, they should still have about $35 million in space. I thought Melvin Gordon would have made a lot of sense for them. Obviously, he's now with Denver. So, looking at this team, if they can add another wide receiver like Brashad Perriman, bring back Dominican Sue, and I think at the running back spot now, you still have Ronald Jones, but if you look to add another running back that is out there, the point being is that the Buccaneers are not done here, but even still, you have incredible weapons in Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, Big play, down the field threats. You know I, I I know there's a lot of talk about how Brady is not someone who's capable of maximizing big deep throw down the field threats at this stage in his career. I think he is still. You have O j. Howard as that dependable tight end option. should they want to use him to the fullest extent that they can. They could use some help on the offensive line. You know I'm not sure that the four offensive tackles, one of them will be available at that fourteen spot in the draft. So I look in free agency, maybe someone, I know he's up there in age and has a propensity to maybe be injured at times at this stage in his career, but maybe someone like Jason Peters is someone they could look at as someone to potentially add at the tackle spot on the offensive line. Um, But as a whole, again, mentioning how they are an attractive destination for a veteran quarterback, you have a veteran-established, offensive-minded head coach, warm weather, No state income tax, a plethora of offensive weapons, the ability to add more. We look at the defensive side of the ball. Look at the work that Todd Bowles did with this team. This team is one of the five best run defenses in the entire league. This is a very good defense. Could use some help in the secondary, but still a very good defense. So this team is talented on both sides of the ball. And we look at their division there in the NFC South. New Orleans, obviously the top of the division. Tampa Bay is clearly the number two team in this division now. I think with Tom Brady at the helm here, if Tom Brady, you know, is Tom Brady the quarterback he once was at this stage in his career? No, obviously not. But if Tom Brady can be, you know, about the 12th best quarterback, 13th best, 14th best quarterback in the league with the weapons at his disposal, with the defense they had or have, should they add at corner? Should they add at offensive tackle? Bring back Dominican Sue? Bring back Rashad Perriman? This is a playoff team, and this is a team who can make some noise. Do I look at this team right now and say that's a Super Bowl contender? You know, I'm not sure I'm ready to go there. I think it's very possible. I'm not going to sit here and predict that they are a NFC Conference champion level team. I think they are definitely a playoff caliber team and can make some noise with those weapons, with Tom Brady as their quarterback, with the defense that they have. But I'm not ready to sit here and anoint them as a Super Bowl favorite at this point in time. I think this Buccaneers team as a whole really has been kind of stuck in the middle for a good while, but they really have, if there is a safe, dependable quarterback, a highly talented quarterback that Tom Brady, the Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, obviously is, and you're not dealing with a quarterback who will throw an interception for every touchdown that he throws in Jameis Winston... This, to me, is a 10-6 and six team. This is a playoff team. So I'm interested to see how much more they add, how they attack the draft, sitting there at 14th in the draft, and really just seeing Tom Brady. You know, we talked last year, in his, this last year at the Patriots, what was the criticism? They didn't have enough weapons. You know, they had to go out and... Get Antonio Brown that lasted a game, but they had to go out there and get Antonio Brown to add weapons to this offense. They or to that offense. They had to trade a second round pick for Mohamed Sanu. The team was lacking in weapons. On the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tom Brady is not going to be lacking in offensive weapons when you have Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, two beasts, at the wide receiver position, and O.J. Howard. I think they need to add a tackle, and they need to add in the secondary on defense, but this is a 10-6 and 6 team to me who will and should make the playoffs, and I know it's weird hearing and seeing that Tom Brady is a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, but as far as what a veteran quarterback at his stage would look for on the field, off the field, financially, it makes all the sense in the world, so I think it's a great fit. I think this is an incredible coup for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, obviously for Bruce Arians and Jason Lick there as a general manager, to move from Jameis Winston to Tom Brady. You know, I hadn't even really given Tampa Bay that much significant consideration as a landing spot for Tom Brady. My thought, I was advocating for them to go out there and get Teddy Bridgewater to be their quarterback as a safe game manager to take advantage of their defense, not pursue a quarterback who will turn the ball over a lot and be highly volatile like Jameis Winston. But hey, They're sitting there now with the greatest quarterback of all time, who I think has two more years left in him. I know he is not what he once was, and I know people are, you know, talking specifically about his ability to hit big, deep throws 50 yards down the field. I think Tom Brady, from what we saw last year, has two more years of being a high-level quarterback in him. So I think Tampa Bay will be able to take advantage of that with the weapons around him. I think it's a perfect situation for both parties. So I'm very excited to see Tom Brady on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in whatever their new uniforms end up being, because it makes all the sense in the world, as weird as it is. Let's move now to the Miami Dolphins. Obviously, if you've listened to the show before, I am incredibly invested in and interested in the Dolphins' overall process here, the fish tank, as it was called last year. So... Let's just go run it down by the signings here as far as the Miami Dolphins and their major free agent spending is concerned. So we have to start out, obviously, with Byron Jones. Byron Jones is an elite-level shutdown corner. The Dolphins beat out the Las Vegas Raiders, the Philadelphia Eagles, the New York Giants in pursuing Jones, got him in there on a five-year deal, for $82.5 million, with $57 million of that guaranteed. Now, my first takeaway was, when we were all hearing about the discussions on what would Byron Jones' contract end up being, the topic all along was, it's going to be a $17 million a year deal. It's going to be an $18 million a year deal. The Dolphins got him in there on $16.5 million. And perhaps that's a result of the fact that It was a five-year term instead of a three-year term. You know, we saw a lot of three-year deals in this free agency period. And perhaps it was a result of that, that since it was a five-year deal, it got down to 16 and a half. But the fact of the matter that this Byron Jones signing shows is this. The Dolphins, And when I talked about this before, I had said that the Dolphins had one monster deal in them. You know, I, I had pegged that to go to an edge rusher. I did not peg that to go to someone in the secondary. However, if we look at it, and there's a great piece in the Miami Herald the other day about this as well, the Dolphins are following suit in the Ravens thinking and in the large now growing thinking, which I subscribe to also now, in that pass coverage supersedes that, the importance of the pass rush. And what they're doing is in... Having two elite level shutdown corners in Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, what they're looking to do is they're going to build up such a high level of pass coverage that it is going to manufacture a pass rush for them. Now, as we saw in free agency, as I'll get into in a little bit with talking specifically about Shaq Lawson, Emmanuel Agba, the Dolphins really went out there. They pursued mid tier talent for their pass rush, pursued high-level elite talent for pass coverage, and pursued players who, outside of their defensive line, are all skilled in pass coverage. Now, this Miami Herald article, it talked about Bobby McCain and Eric Rowe as their two safeties. Both guys converted from corner. Better coverage skills. Byron Jones and Xavier Howard are two elite-level corners. The best cornerback duo in the NFL, now there. Kyle Van Noy, who I'll talk about in a little bit as well, a guy who is skilled in pass coverage, At the linebacker position last year minimize the amount of pass coverage snaps that Raquan McMillan took because he's not great in coverage you know Jerome Baker who's decent in pass coverage as well so this team outside of those are putting their hand in the ground on the defensive line everyone who in the secondary forward is skilled in pass coverage so in theory you have a stronger pass coverage which has a forward effect on the rest of the defense the greater the pass coverage is, the tighter the windows are to throw in, the less the open man or the less open the wide receivers become, the longer it takes for wide receivers to become open, more time for the rush, pass rush to get to the quarterback. And that is the route that the Dolphins are taking here. Now, to specifically look at the Byron Jones contract, I mentioned the $82.5 million figure. Um, I mentioned the $57 million guaranteed. If the Dolph if it for whatever reason it goes wrong, these numbers per over the cap, the Dolphins can get out of this deal and have some cap savings prior to year three. They would have fifteen million in dead cap, uh, but would get cap savings of two point three million. Uh if cut before year four, they'd have dead cap or dead money of six million, have cap savings of eleven point one million, and if cut before year five, they would incur only three million dollars in dead money and would save million towards the cap. So the Dolphins here, obviously, over the course of this five year deal, they have outs before the end of the term. And probably we're looking at at least three years here. So, moving past the contract, also, let's look at Byron Jones, specifically the player, quantify just how good he is. Last year, Byron Jones was the 14th highest PFF graded corner in the league. And per PFF's war metric, He was the third most valuable corner in the league um, from the 2018 season to now. Byron Jones is a guy who originally was a safety, has only been playing corner for two years. You can put him on the other team's best receiver, no matter what side of the field, and he's going to shut them down and lock them down. You want him to shadow the other team's best receiver? He's got it. You want him to lock down one side of the field? He's got it. He is exactly what you would look for in a top-tier, dependable, number one corner in the NFL, at the most premium position on defense in football. You put Byron Jones on the outside, as I mentioned, regardless of who he's going up against, regardless of what side of the field he's on, and he's going to deliver. And you look at him now with Zavian Howard, Zavian Howard is also a player whose value comes from the fact that he can move around the field, can go um, on either side of the field, can shadow number one wide receivers, or shut down one side of the field. You now have two of those players on the same defense. Now, you're you're also paying the second and third highest paid corners in the league, uh, devoting $31 million a year to start out to these two corners. But the fact of the matter, again, is this. If you believe... In pass coverage over the pass rush, you now have the best corner duo in the league, and that's going to make the entire defense in front of you better. And if it for some reason does not work out, there is an out prior to year 3. Larger outs prior to year 4 and 5, but they can get out of it after 2 years. I would suspect at minimum this is a 3-year arrangement here with Byron Jones. But again, 27 years old, got plenty of great football left in him, and really was the most valuable player for what the Dolphins are looking for for their defense as far as what they were looking for on their defense he was the most valuable free agent out there they were able to get him keep him away from all these other suitors this is a slam dunk home run signing next we look at Kyle Van Noy Kyle Van Noy signed on a four-year deal for 51 million dollars which basically the way it's structured if the Kyle Van Noy deal doesn't work out it's basically just a one-year, $15 million contract. Um, if it were not to work out prior to year two, the Dolphins could cut him, have $9 million in dead money, but save $6.5 million towards the cap. Prior to year three, uh, would be $6 million in dead money, $9.275 million in savings towards the cap. And prior to year four, only $3 million in dead money and $11.175 million in cap savings. So, if it doesn't work out, if Kyle Van Noy is the player that he was prior to New England when he was on Detroit, uh, the Patriots, obviously, as we know, traded a six-round pick for him. He really blossomed there. But with the structure of the contract, even though Brian Flores has extreme familiarity with him from his time in New England, if for whatever reason it doesn't work out and he's not the same player he was in New England, one year, $15 million, they can save towards the cap prior to year two. But... Kyle Van Noy, I mentioned that coverage aspect. Kyle Van Noy is a valuable player here because he's a guy who you can put at off-ball linebacker or you could have him pressure the quarterback off the edge. Per PFF, he has an 83, or last year had an 83.7 run defense grade, with his, which is fifth, was fifth amongst all edge defenders in the league. Uh, his pass rush grade was 34th out of all edge defenders at 72.1, had a 76.1 coverage grade, and had an overall PFF grade of 84.2. So what Van Noy brings is a lot of value in the sense that he is really a Swiss Army knife here. You want to put him in pass coverage as an off-ball linebacker? So be it, he can do it. You want to put him as a run-stopping linebacker? He can do it. You want him to pressure the quarterback off the edge? He can do it. He is a versatile piece who can be useful in so many different areas. And when you're building out this team... Under head coach Brian Flores here, this is a player who provides a lot of value as being that leader in the middle, or being a guy who can help out pressuring the quarterback with the incredible coverage you have behind him, and is also a guy who you can put out there in coverage, and he can guard high-level, or guard, he can defend high-level tight ends. He can be someone who can pick up someone in zone coverage. Kyle Van Nooy is a guy you can use across the field in many different ways. To bring even more stats into it, on 449 pass rush snaps last year, Kyle Van Noy had 58 pressures, 12.9% pressure rate there. He made 30 run stops, missed just five tackles all season, had the fifth highest run defending grade amongst edges last season. He can pressure from the right side of the edge, or from the right edge, he can pressure from the left side of the line off the edge as well. So, There is not a more versatile player that the Dolphins could have found who would have been helpful towards their desire to be very strong in pass coverage and to be able to effectively get after the quarterback than Kyle Van Noy. Factor in the familiarity with Brian Flores. Factor in the fact that should he not be the player that he was last year, I expect him to be that player again this year, but if he's not, if he's the player he was prior to New England, they have an out after one year. The contract structure is great. The per year monies I think is fine, and he's exactly what this defense needed. So I think this is another A-level signing for the Dolphins uh in these past couple of days of free agency. Moving past Kyle Van Noy, you know, let's let's look at the Dolphins and their additions off the edge. Let's look first at um, Shaq Lawson. Shaq Lawson signing a three year deal worth $30 million. And I would describe Shaq Lawson as a whole. I think Shaq Lawson is a bit of a streaky edge rusher. I don't look at Shaq Lawson and necessarily see a surefire starting edge rusher. I think he's a good rotational edge rusher. You're probably best off if he's your number three edge on your team. Now, last year he had the best season of his career uh, six and a half sacks, did not start for Buffalo, but also was a beast. In run defense as well, Um, per NFL Next Gen stats, he was one of four edge defenders to force a run stuff on over 5% of run defense snaps and generated pressure on over 10% of of pass rush snaps this season with a minimum of 100 snaps. Only other people to do that were Brandon Graham, Josh Sweat, and Max Crosby. And so also with Lawson last year with Buffalo, again, Buffalo declined that fifth year option for Shaq Lawson. That's why he was a free agent this offseason. Looking at him last year with Buffalo, I mentioned the sort of rotational role he did not start for them, played on 47% of defensive snaps. I mentioned the six and a half sacks and 18 knockdowns. So Lawson is a productive player. In that three year, $30 million contract with $21 million guaranteed, the Dolphins paid him here like a number two edge. They paid him like a starting edge rusher. And You know, I get that the Dolphins wanted to go from mid-tier, not necessarily that expensive talent, in building out their pass rush, going with the idea that pass coverage is what's going to build out their defense and what they were going to spend the most resources on. But I think here, they paid Lawson like a number two, as I mentioned, when really, Lawson for his whole career, I know he had a career year last year, but even last year, Lawson to me is a rotational edge who's best off being your number three edge. You know, I personally... You know, we look at the deal that the Raiders signed Carl Nassib to, basically uh, three years for 25 million. I thought that was a bit of, a bit of an overpay, but you know I, I think that figure is probably what I would have been comfortable paying Shaq Lawson at an eight and a half million, nine million, maybe a year figure, because again, Shaq Lawson he had six and a half sacks last year. That's the most he's had in his in his entire career. I think he's a safe signing in the sense that you know that you'll get you know, decent production every single year. He doesn't necessarily, to me, he's not a player who has a high ceiling. I think he is what he is. I think he's a safe edge rusher and is a good player to have in your edge rotation. I'm just not so sure that he can play at the level that he did last year and can play at a number two edge rusher level consistently. Now, perhaps long-term, that is not necessarily the role that they foresee him in, and that's the role that he'll be occupying this year, obviously, um, dependent on what they do in the draft, I just think it was a bit rich. I'm not that crazy about Lawson. I mentioned the Mario Addison deal earlier being better than this one. I think Lawson is what he is. I don't think there's a lot of upside left in him, and I think they overpaid him slightly for the player that he is. You know, I don't think they overspent too much on him, but I think it was a slight overpay, and I think it was paying him to be a player that he probably just quite isn't at the level at the level of player that they paid him as. I don't think he's quite at that level of being a starting number two edge rusher. Now, this next signing that the Dolphins made, I was a huge fan of. Emmanuel Ogba, um, edge rusher, two years, 15 million, with 7.5 million guaranteed. 7.5 million being the yearly salary. If they were to cut him after this year, because for whatever reason it didn't work out, they would have no dead money on their books for next year and would reap A full $7.5 million in cap savings. Last season, Ogbo was on the Chiefs. Season was cut short, only played 10 games. Despite that abbreviated season, he still had a career high of 5.5 sacks. Over the course of his career, in his last 21 games, he has a sack in 16 of his last 21 games. In 2015, he had 17.5 tackles for a loss with the Cleveland Browns. I liked Ogba a lot coming out of the draft, Um, obviously drafted um, by the Sashi Browns, or the Sashi Brown era, Cleveland Browns, shout out to Sashi Brown there. Ogba's a guy, you can put him on the left side, you can put him on the right side, he's a big-bodied, physical edge rusher who is athletic, and as we've seen here, in that short window of only 10 games, 5.5 sacks. In his last 21 games, has a sack in 16 of those games, or had a sack in 16 of those games. I would I personally like this Agba deal more than I do the Shaq Lawson deal. I think there's upside to be had in Agba. And looking further about Agba, his career pass rush productivity rate, 8.3%. Last year, 10.7 pressure rate. Year before that, or it's not the year before that. His rookie year, 2016, 9.4 pressure rate. Agba in this limited sample size here with the Chiefs last year with his early numbers with the Browns uh, before he got traded when John Dorsey came in. Uh, Emmanuel Agba is a player who can get after the quarterback at a pretty significant rate. He's a player who's athletic, who's strong. You can put him on either side of the line, and he's going to get at the quarterback. He's going to get after the quarterback. And when you can get him on a deal for two for 15... You know, maybe $7.5 a, a year is high, whatever is the case. No dead money if it doesn't work out and they have to cut him now, or even they have to cut him before year two. And even if it didn't work out before the end of this season, they could cut him and have $7.5 dead money, wouldn't lose. They wouldn't have any cap savings, but it wouldn't be a negative amount. The point being here is this. There's flexibility with, um, with Agba's contract, There is the ability to get out of the contract after a year. Should it not work out? Should he be injury-prone and deal with injuries all year? But when you're a team like the Dolphins looking to manufacture that pass rush with mid-tier talent that's inexpensive, Agba is young. He is shown in a limited sample last year. He had 5.5 sacks in 10 games. It's pretty good. It's really good. Pressure rates high throughout his career, And coming out of the draft, again, a prototypical physical athletic edge rusher talent. So when you're looking for young, upside-full talent off of the edge, and you don't want to spend too much on your edge rushers in comparison to your secondary and pass coverage, Manuel Agba is the type of signing that you have to make. And I like this signing a lot, and I think if Agba can stay healthy for a full season in a starting role for this Dolphins defense— I think there's a lot of upside to be had in Emmanuel Ogba. I think the Browns should have kept him. And I think right now this presents a really interesting upside opportunity for the Miami Dolphins. I really like this Ogba signing. This was a signing I like much more than the Shaq Lawson one. Lots of flexibility. Not that expensive. And there's upside to be had in the player. Let's move to the offensive side of the ball. Let's look at the offensive line. Two signings they made. Eric Flowers. Eric Flowers. Three years, 30000000 19.95 guaranteed. Eric Flowers, to put it bluntly, was a disaster as an offensive tackle when he was a member of the New York Giants. Now, last year, as a member of the Washington Redskins, moved to the interior of the offensive line as an offensive guard, and he had a pretty solid season. Uh, his PFF grade wasn't anything special. It was only at about a 64 or so, but he had a 92% pass block rate. The Dolphins in that category were last, last season, per Cameron Wolf of ESPN. So, the Dolphins here, when I I was looking at the Dolphins coming into this offseason, I thought that they needed to add at least two offensive linemen through free agency. And I think they'll add one in the draft at the offensive tackle spot, but I looked at them and I thought, even though he didn't make it to free agency, someone like a Joe Thune or a Connor McGovern at center or if it got, didn't get too expensive, too crazy expensive, Jack Conklin. They, Eric Flowers, look, is there a risk here? Absolutely, because he was an unmitigated disaster with the New York Giants. However, as a member of the Washington Redskins, he was a solid, decent starter. And if they keep him at guard, please don't even think about putting him at tackle again. If they keep him at the interior, on the interior of the offensive line at guard, I think that you could look for a decent level starter in Eric Flowers. Nothing too crazy, but I think he can be decent. He can be solid, can be a mediocre level offensive starting guard. And if you can get that for the Miami Dolphins with the, quite frankly, terrible offensive line that they had last year and need to build out, at $10 million a year, you can live with that. So if he's the player that he was last year moving forward and does not revert to his old New York Giants ways, then it's a good signing. However, if he reverts to his New York Giants ways, even though that was a tackle, they in theory should be playing him at guard, then this signing is a disaster. It really all depends if he can carry over that offensive guard success to this Miami Dolphins organization. Keeping it on the offensive line, Ted Karras, they signed former New England Patriot, signed him to be their center on a one year deal. You know, I think it's a good little stopgap for a season. Uh, I think Karras is an upgrade over Kilgore, their center from last year. Not a huge upgrade, but a a fine upgrade. You know, I don't look at him and see necessarily a long-term answer at the center spot, Ted Karras being that long-term answer. However, to make their line a little bit better, to have a cheap one-year $4 million deal, I believe it was, not a long-term commitment. I think it's a fine deal. There's familiarity with him being on the Patriots, Brian Flores being there, even the defensive role, they were still there at the same time. So I look at the Ted Karras signing, and I think, again, it's a good short-term solution and is an improvement, not on a huge level, but it's still an improvement over um, Daniel Kilgore, who was at that spot for the Dolphins last year. And I think as a whole, to touch on the offensive line one final time, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they come out of the draft and how they sort of maneuver this offensive line because Eric Flowers, you pencil in as a starter at one of the offensive guard spots, Ted Karras at center. They signed Jesse Davis to a three year extension. He played at a uh, left tackle for them last year. I would not be crazy about him at, about Jesse Davis being a long-term offensive tackle for me. I think he's better off being a guard. However, you also have Michael Dieter who you picked in the third round last year. Michael Dieter can play at either guard or center. You have Ted Karras and Eric Flowers. Do we look at this line now and it's Eric Flowers, Ted Karras, Michael Dieter, Jesse Davis, and whoever they add at the tackle spot in the draft, you know, I think they'd be better off moving Davis back inside, which would then make them need to have two additions at the offensive tackle spot. Um, so it's I'll just be interested to see how they maneuver this offensive line, but I think it would be their best move to go with Davis and Flowers on the interior with Karras at center. However, if they only add one tackle, then you could put Davis to the outside and put Michael Dieter in the other offensive guard spot. And so the last signing for the Dolphins that I wanted to address, Jordan Howard. Jordan Howard, I thought this was a bit of a pricey deal, and this was probably the most not crazy, I was about any of the Dolphins signings. Uh Jordan Howard, the deal, a two-year deal worth $9.75 million with $4.75 million guaranteed. He can be cut before a year or two of this contract. The Dolphins would incur no dead money and would have cap savings of a full $5 million. 4.75 is his cap number this year, $5 million in the second year. I look at Jordan Howard. I think he's a solid running back. He has been solid for a long period of time. I think he's a bit of a plotter though. and I think if they were going to go out and spend you know close to five million dollars in cap in their cap space on a running back, I think they may as well have spent a little bit more and gone for that Melvin Gordon 2 for 16 million dollar deal or gone for a cheaper option on a one-year deal. I think they kind of went into no man's land and went into the middle ground as far as the running back market was concerned. You know, I don't I don't think that they needed to go out there and spend, even though they can cut Howard after a year and have no dead money, so they're effectively playing with house money at that point. I still think that they didn't need to go out there and spend the cap space that they did on Jordan Howard. I think they could have gotten a better running back in Melvin Gordon for slightly more on a two-year deal or they could have just gone for someone on a cheaper one-year deal. Now, I fully expect, looking at the Dolphins, they're going to add a running back in this draft, whether it's in the late first with that 26th pick, or they trade down from 26 into the second round, or they use their own pick in the second round, or the Saints pick in the second round. You know, Jonathan Taylor, to me, is by far the best running back in this draft. There's J.K. Dobbins, there's DeAndre Swift, there's Clyde Edwards-Hilaire from LSU, there's Cam Akers. There's five guys who I think would be worthy additions for this Dolphins backfield. We look at this Dolphins backfield last year, you know, this 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 backfield needs two additions. Kalen Ballage, Patrick Laird, Mark Walton, who I believe was arrested and suspended um, last season as well, after, you know, trading Kenyon Drake to Arizona. This team needs a whole new backfield. So, I think Jordan Howard is solid. I think he's a bit of a plotter, though, as I just mentioned, and I don't like the fact that they There was the sort of area of paying up for a Melvin Gordon or just going with a cheap one-year option. And they kind of went into the middle and got someone who I don't think was going to approach that money with another team. You know, he's a solid running back, Jordan Howard, that'll give him a one-two punch with him and whoever they draft. Uh, but I, I would have preferred them to go with someone cheaper just to outright sign Melvin Gordon. But as a whole, looking at this Dolphins offseason, again... Last offseason, beginning of this fish tank in the process, it was the beginning of, hey, we're going to get as much draft capital as we can. We're going to be as flexible as we want in the offseason. We're basically going to be able to control the draft with our incredible haul of draft picks, and we're going to be able to go out in free agency and do as we please. I thought they had one major deal in them. They did. It went to Byron Jones. They added Kyle Van Noy, a Swiss Army knife who bolsters their focus on pass coverage and can effectively get after the quarterback. They took a shot on Emmanuel Ogba, who I think has upside, has been a very good edge rusher in his limited sample size, especially last year. Uh, Shaq Lawson, you know, I think they overpaid a little bit, but it wasn't too much of an overpay. I think he's a nice rotational edge. Ted Karras, a improvement over last year's center in Kilgore. Nice one-year solution. Eric Flowers, if he does not revert to his old ways, I think is a decent starting guard for them. Jordan Howard was an overpay, but still a solid player at a position of need. Overall... If they can get the quarterback position right for the long term, and even if it's Tua, who it should be, they got to get up there and get Tua, who I would suspect then would, you know, not play for a year perhaps, and then Fitzpatrick would play quarterback for the season. Regardless of if it's Tua or Fitzpatrick or whoever a quarterback this year, I think with these additions, you know, with Brian Flores being such a great coach and a great leader, getting that team they had last year to five wins, I look at this team this year. As of now, I look at them as an 8-and-8 team. I think Flores is a great coach. I I am concerned a bit about the fact that there was so much turnover in their coaching staff from last year to this year. You know, new offensive coordinator, new defensive coordinator, a lot of new positional coaches as well. Under Flores, there was basically almost an entire turnover of their coaching staff after just one season. Chan Gailey now in there as the offensive coordinator. So... I am concerned about that, but I think Flores is a great leader. They got themselves a great coach. Chris Greer doing a great job in that general manager role. They just got to get Tua in this draft. I, I think 5-26-3 and 26 to three, to get up there for the Lions pick after Chase Young goes 2 and Joe Burrow goes 1, I think that's what we end up seeing happening, and I think they end up with Tua. I don't buy the fact that they might like Justin Herbert more than Tua. I know that's been kind of talked about a lot recently. I don't buy it. So... They got to go up there and get Tua, and if they do, they did a good job in the draft, or in the free agency, especially on the defensive side of the ball. No egregious contracts. Need to build up the offensive line. Maybe add another edge rusher in the draft as well. Add a running back and get that quarterback solution. This is an 8-8 team who I think could be a pretty nice team this year. And not this year, but in 2021, I think we're looking at a surefire playoff team in Miami. So that'll do it for part one of my NFL free agency recap podcast here on after the final whistle. Stay tuned for the subsequent parts of my NFL offseason recap. I'll be discussing the New England Patriots quarterback situation, the Indianapolis Colts with DeForest Buckner and Phillip Rivers in the fold, the Eagles, the Panthers and their quarterback situation, the Raiders, the Giants, the Browns, the Jets, all that coming in subsequent episodes here of After the Final Whistle NFL Free Agency Recap and Review. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to stay tuned here on Apple Podcasts and Podcast.com for the subsequent parts of the NFL Offseason Podcast Series here. And as always, to you, the listener, goodbye, stay tuned for the next episode coming soon, and good night.